turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. We'll be back here in our study in Exodus. Series entitled, I Am, Still Is. I'm so thankful for many of the wonderful truths that we've already been able to learn in the course of study here through Exodus. Of course, there's many, many more to come. We've been kind of getting the background here over the last, uh, I mean, our first seven messages or so here on setting the stage for God's deliverance, and we're very soon to get into it. Um, In fact, by the end of our text tonight, Moses will be going to the elders of Israel and to tell them that God has come, God has visited, and God is going to deliver you. And the response of people is they're going to bow and they're going to worship before God. And that's why, why we've been here tonight. It's because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we've come to worship him. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4 and uh, we're going to cover verses 18 through verse 31 tonight. God has uh, commanded Moses to take a giant leap of faith. A giant leap of faith. I'm thankful that you're here tonight. I'm thankful my parents are here tonight. My parents are Jim's, uh, raised three boys, rowdy, raucous, destructive, and there are many, many stories going back to my childhood. And as you can imagine, boys are notorious for doing stupid things. It's just what we do. Uh, The famous last words of a man is, watch this, right? And so, you know, when, it, when a kid or a teenager especially says, hey, watch this, you know, you have to tune into that because something stupidly entertaining is about to take place. I remember when I was a teenager, my brother was our youth pastor and we went to uh, Boondocks Fun Center in uh, Thornton off I-25 and 120th. And uh, I was playing mini golf with some of my friends and there on one of the courses, they, they have one of the holes is inside of a cave. And so you've got this cave, you hit it in there, you really can't see where the hole is at. Well, like I said, boys do stupid things. And so I decided uh, that I was going to have this novel idea to hit the ball into the cave as hard as I possibly could. And of course, my words were, hey, guys, watch this. (laughs) And so I lined up that ball and I swung back and as hard as I could smacked it into that cave just to see what would happen. Well, there was a support beam right in the center of that cave and the support beam was probably only about six inches wide and somehow in that whack I hit the six inches that I shouldn't have hit that ball banged off of that support beam and came flying right back out as a split second later we were all ducking hitting the deck could have taken us out Boys just do stupid things and say, watch this while we're doing it. Now, of course, my son falls off of things, as you're very well aware of. Chairs, benches, couches, tables, platforms. I mean, just likes to fall off things, I guess, right? No, he doesn't like to fall off. It just kind of happens to him. And you would think, you think as much as he's fallen off of things that that he'd have this real adventurous spirit within him, you know? And sometimes I'll see him over at our, our other uh, building on Sunday mornings, jump off the, the steps down to the foyer, you know? And that's what boys like to do. They like to jump off things. But for whatever reason, when I pick him up and I throw him up in the air, 
He doesn't like that. And so I'll go to throw him up in the air. He'll put his arms around my neck and he'll hold on for dear life with the jaws of death, you know, and won't, won't let me throw him up there, you know. And so there are times when he'll, he'll jump off those steps, but then there might be times where I say, hey, buddy, you know, if he's in a tree or if he's on a fence or something like that, hey, buddy, jump, go ahead and jump off. I'll catch you. And there's, you can tell there's something in him that's like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't know. I don't know if he's going to catch me. I don't know if he's going to drop me. I don't know. I've fallen so many times. I know what it's like to fall, and I just don't like it. There's a lot of reluctance there to jump into his father's arms. You know, there are times in our lives when God comes to us, and he wants us to take a leap of faith. He wants us to take a leap into the arms of a father that we cannot see. A father that we don't, we don't know how he's going to catch us in this situation. We don't know how he's going to come through for us in this situation. And so it could be things like he wants you to start tithing or he wants you to give to missions. And that's just something you've never done before. This idea of, of 10% of your income plus something else to go to missions and spreading the gospel around the world. And that could be a leap of faith for you. Uh, sometimes it could be a leap into ministry. That God wants you to get involved in some specific ministry in a church. Or maybe God calls you to full-time ministry, to be a preacher, to be a, a missionary or something like that. It might be something as simple if you have just recently started coming to church of saying, I'm going to be there every time the doors are open. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night, I'm going to be there and commit my life to being a faithful church member. And God could be speaking to your heart about that. And, and, and you can realize maybe that's a leap of faith for you. Even something as simple as that. It could be a leap into marriage or a leap into having kids or a leap into a new job, or a leap into a new education. It could be a, a leap into sharing the gospel, getting involved in community outreach, and now growing to the point where you're going to share your faith that God, through the course of his word, through the course of a message, or your personal time with him, can just begin to work on your life and call you to do something. It may just be a clear command from scripture that God wants you to do. But because you can't see the future and because you're not sure how that's going to fall, there can be some reluctance within you. You can doubt whether or not you should do what God's telling you to do. Now, you know the right answer to that, but there's still something within you that just asks, how can I trust God to come through in this situation? I've never seen him do it before. I'm going into the dark. I'm going into some valley or I'm climbing up some mountain that I've never been down this road before. How am I possibly going to be able to trust that God's going to come through in this situation of life? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, God had appeared to Moses and he called him to take that giant leap. That I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to go stand before Pharaoh and demand of him to let my people go. And of course, Moses was reluctant. Moses was scared. Moses had doubt. He had insecurity. And, and God did his very best in chapter 3 to resolve his doubt and insecurity. He gave him signs that he was going to perform. He promised him that his brother was going to help him as he came up with excuse after excuse as to why he couldn't do what God was saying he needed to do. And yet what happens in chapter 4 is God has made these promises to him. Aaron's going to go with you. 
You're going to stand before the elders of Israel. They're going to believe you. And then you're going to go before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's not going to let you go unless I compel him by a strong and mighty hand. He's already laying it out for him. Don't you wish God was as clear with us as he is with Moses here in this situation? It'd sure be nice. He doesn't always choose to operate that way. But what Moses shows us is even if God operated that way, it doesn't mean that we would trust him. Doesn't mean that we would. But what we find here as we come to the end of our text in chapter 4 is that God does exactly what he says he would do. He goes before the elders of Israel along with Aaron and he tells them that God has come and visited and he's seen your affliction and he performs the signs and the elders believe just like God said that they would. So how was God's word proven true in Moses' life? And how are we going to come to the place where, where we actually see God do what he says in our lives? When he makes a promise, when he calls you to some task, when he commands you to do something and to take that leap of faith, how do we see God's word come to pass in our lives? The title of our message tonight is Take the Leap. And that's what the challenge is. Just go ahead and do what God says. Put God to the test and what you'll find every time is his word will be proven, proven to be true. See, before Moses could see the proof, he had to obey the truth. The reality is that Moses had to let go of his excuses and he had to surrender to God's call in his life. But while he does surrender to God's call in his life, what we find is he is still dealing with doubt and he's still dealing with insecurity. Would you look with me at verse 18, Exodus 4, verse 18? And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt and see whether they yet be alive. <laughs> Notice what he says there. He says, I just want to go check in on them and make sure they're still alive and well. He doesn't say anything about God's call in his life. He doesn't say anything about his responsibility to go stand before Pharaoh and demand that he deliver Israel out of the hand of Egypt and that he's going to lead God's people out. He doesn't mention any of that to his father-in-law. Why is that? Well, your guess is as good as mine, but I'm going to suggest that it's likely because he doesn't think his father-in-law <laughs> thinks he has what it takes. <laughs> At least he's going to tell his father-in-law, I'm going to go stand before Pharaoh. And he's like, you're going to do what? You've been out here hiding for your life for the last 40 years. And you think you're just going to waltz in there to the palace and you're going to say, hey, let my people go. <laughs> he's saying, I, my father-in-law is not going to jump at this. He's still dealing with some doubt. He's still dealing with security. But it says at the end of verse uh, 18, and Jethro said unto Moses, go in peace. But notice in verse 19, it says, and the Lord said unto Moses in Midian, go return into Egypt for all the men are dead, which sought thy life. You know what that suggests to us? Moses was still scared. <laughs> Moses was still dealing with fear. If I go back in there, the second I walk through Pharaoh's door, he's going to say, off with his head. He's going to take my life. This isn't going to work. This, I, I don't see how the logistics are going to work out. And so he's going through all this in his brain, and he's struggling with it. So he just tells his father-in-law, I just want to go check and make sure they're still alive. And, and he's not going yet. He's, he's delaying. He's hesitating a little bit because he's scared for his life. And yet God comes to him and says, Go ahead and return to Egypt 
they're all gone. But you notice in verse 20, it says, And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And so just like God told him to do, Moses goes. Now, while Moses had surrendered to do what God had called him to do, he was still dealing with this doubt. He was still dealing with this fear and his own insecurities here. And yet he finally came to the place where he did not allow his self-doubt and he did not allow his insecurities to keep him from doing what God said to do. See, the reality is, is when God steps into your life and he gives you a clear call and a clear command, you've got to do what God says to do. But just because you finally surrender to that and you decide to go, it doesn't mean you're going to be completely shielded from doubt. It doesn't mean you're going to be completely shielded from fear and insecurity. You're still going to question, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know where the money's going to come from. I don't know what I'm going to have to let go of. I don't know what the response of my parents is going to be. I don't know what the response of my spouse is going to be. I don't know what the response of my boss is going to be when I go in and ask him if I can have Sundays off from now on. I don't know what's going to happen. The logistics. You can be flat out scared for what God is calling you to do. It may be something that you've never done before. It could be that you've been addicted to something for a long time and you're fearing that maybe what you're going to do is deal with withdrawals and it's going to send you into depression and you're going to struggle. And so you're dealing with all this doubt, all this fear and insecurity, and that's going to happen in your life. And nearly every single Sunday that I stand in the pulpit to preach, I finish a message saying, I don't know how that went. I don't know that that connected. There's still doubt. There's still fear. There's still insecurity. But here's the key. You got to come to a place in your life where you don't allow your doubts, your fears, and your insecurities keep you from doing what God said to do. And that's exactly how it came about for Moses. He had all the excuses. He laid them all out before God. God demonstrated his power. He demonstrated his provision. And yet he continued to make excuses. And he said, Lord, send somebody else. But he finally grew to the place where in spite of his fear and in spite of his doubt, he surrendered and he went and did what God told him to do. And that's the place that each and every one of us is going to have to come to if we're following God. Along the way to Egypt, God lays out how this is going to go with Pharaoh. Would you look at verse number 21? And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Now we're going to deal with this over the course of the next several chapters, how how. Pharaoh hardens his heart and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And, and there's a lot of discussion about the idea of God sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart in this situation. It's because of its direct tie to Romans chapter nine, when Paul is talking about how, how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will harden whom I will harden. And so it talks about that. And so a lot of people like to take this, they run with the idea that this applies to salvation that God sovereignly chooses one group to be saved and he sovereignly chooses one group to be condemned on no basis whatsoever other than saving grace. That's what, that's, 
what many people run with. But I got to point out a couple things here that I think will set the record straight for us. Number one is this. God's hardening of Pharaoh has nothing to do with whether or not this man is going to go to heaven or if this man is going to go to hell. It has nothing to do with that. <laughs> it has everything to do with God's purpose. There's, it's key to understand that. God's purpose of salvation continuing to go forward. Okay, because we got we to gotta understand that what's happening right now is God has formed a covenant with the nation of Israel. And in that covenant is that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God is going to bring the Savior, the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, and then the seed of Seth, who was appointed instead of Abel. And it goes on down through uh, Shem, and then it goes on down through uh, Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it goes down to Judah and then to David and it comes to Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ the Savior is going to come through the nation of Israel but there is a problem right now Pharaoh is standing in the way of them becoming the people that God wants them to be to bring the Savior that God wants to bring and so they're in bondage under Egypt. And God knows as long as they're in bondage under Egypt, they won't be free to worship me. They won't be free to go to the land that I have prepared for them. And they'll not go on to fulfill the covenant that I have called them to fulfill, the purpose to which I have called them. And so what happens here is that, and I've got to point this out as well, Pharaoh is already a hardened, rejecting individual. Because in chapter 3 and verse 19, God already said, uh, by the way, Pharaoh's not going to let you go unless I compel him by a mighty hand. Now, God could have just done one thing, but instead he decided to bring 10 plagues. And so you have this back and forth of Pharaoh hardening his own heart against God. And then you have God hardening Pharaoh's heart even further. And so you have this back and forth action. The reason why is for God to be able to do his wonders before the land of Egypt, but not just the land of Egypt, but all the nations of the world. It was to make his glory known so that people from all nations might believe that he is God. <laughs> That was God's overall theological purpose to the 10 plagues and thus the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in response to Pharaoh's already hardened, rejecting heart. <clears throat> and so what God is doing here is he ensure, he's ensuring that his purpose continues to go forward that all the nations might be saved. And you know what ends up happening? There are Egyptians that believe in the God of Israel that go with the nation of Israel into the wilderness. And there's a Canaanite woman in the city of Jericho by the name of Rahab. We know her as a harlot, and yet she had faith in God. And the specific reason she had faith in God is because of the wonders that God had done in the land of Egypt. And there are other uh, people from other nations that are going to believe the God of Israel. And they are going to assimilate into the people of God. And the stated reason is because of the wonders that God did in the land of Egypt. So we have to understand this. Pharaoh, who had already rejected God. We're going to see that next week in chapter 5 when Moses goes and says, The Lord, I am, has said, let my people go. And he says, who is I am? I don't know who that is. Why should I obey his voice? He has already rejected God and ignored him. And in response to that, God hardens his heart to display his wonders so that all the world might be saved. 
so this nation could be delivered, so that they could go into the land of Canaan and become the people of God that they were supposed to be, to bring the Savior of God that God wanted to bring, so that he would die in our place on the cross and provide redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with Pharaoh's individual salvation. It has everything to do with God's purpose of salvation going forward. And so you cannot take this text and build a Calvinistic theology to suggest that God sovereignly chooses some to be saved and sovereignly chooses others not to be saved on any other basis than by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is God's, God's grace is this, that you can be saved by faith in Christ. God's grace is that he provided it when we didn't deserve it. God's grace is that it's available to all who will receive it and who will believe it. That is God's grace, my friend, because this text was not teaching any of that ideology. Neither, in fact, is Romans chapter 9, because what you find is that Romans chapter 9 through 11 is right in tune with the purpose of Exodus chapter 4. That what God is saying is that there were some Israelites who rejected Jesus Christ when he came, and in response to their rejection of Jesus Christ, Christ, he blinded them and he hardened their heart to the point where they would reject their Messiah altogether and crucify him. Why would God do that? So that Jesus would die on the cross and establish his New Testament church. So his New Testament church would go through all the world preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles would take the gospel back to the Jews so that they could be saved. Because understand this, the blindness that Paul says in part has happened to Israel means that it is temporary. It is not that God blinded them and hardened them all the way to eternal death and rejection of Jesus Christ and eternity in hell. That's not what it is. He temporarily brought blindness to them so that when the Gentiles come back to the Jews with the gospel, their eyes would be opened and they would trust Christ as their savior. That's basically Romans 9, 10, and 11 in a nutshell. You go check it out and that's what you're gonna find. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? God hardens those whom he will, and he has mercy on whom he will to provide salvation, not to save and reject, but to provide salvation. And so I want to just start us off here this first time. We have the mentioning of the hardenedness of Pharaoh to understand this is not helping you talk about salvation. This is helping you talk about God's purpose. What this is showing us is that God's plan of salvation was bigger than one king and it was bigger than any one nation. And so God acts in a very unique and a very rare way to impose his will on a man to ensure that his work of salvation goes forth. That's what we see happening here. And the reason why I could say that is because if you look at verse 22, it says this, and thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. See, God had a son to protect, a firstborn, only begotten son, not just in the nation of Israel, 
but in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 23, I say unto thee, let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. If you refuse to let my people go, my firstborn go, justice will be served and you will lose your firstborn as well. What this is designed to teach us is this. When you disobey God, there are severe consequences. In fact, that's exactly what Moses is about to learn. Look at verse 24. Some of the, this, I'm going to just tell you before we read it, some of the weirdest verses in all of scripture. And I don't profess to have all the answers, but from what I've studied and tried to put together, I'm going to try to make the clearest sense out of it. Verse 24. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. What? So Moses and his family, his wife and his son, and uh, there's some debate if both his sons are there at this point or if it's just one, but his family's on his way to Egypt. They stop in the night for a hotel and God meets him or confronts him is what that means. And it says the Lord tries or sought to kill him. To kill who? To kill Moses. Why is God now trying to kill Moses? Look at verse 25. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son, circumcised him, and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. Okay. So evidently, God's intention here to kill Moses is over the issue of the fact that his son is not circumcised. What that's telling us is that God takes circumcision very seriously. Why? Because it was the sign of the covenant. It was what established the relationship between the Israelites and God. And somewhere along the line, evidently because of Zipporah's anger here, that uh, he and, and his wife had had this discussion prior to this about circumcising his son, and apparently she wasn't okay with that. And he said, okay, and he listened to his wife instead of listening to God, and therefore God's mad at him. Why? Because he disobeyed God. And so she circumcises, she casts the foreskin at his feet, and she says, a bloody husband art thou, and then verse 26 says, so he let him go. When you look that up, it means to release from your grasp. <laughs> the idea is this, I don't know exactly what was happening, but this is the best sense I can make of it, is that when God came, he had Moses in his grip, whether it was by some kind of disease or if it was uh, the angel of God wrestling with him, I don't know. But Moses, who would normally be the one who circumcises the son, is not. Zipporah is. So there's some either physical limitation or God's got his hands on Moses and his knife to his throat. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it says this, essentially, when the blood of the circumcision touched Moses' feet, that apparently uh, appealed or covered his sin, atoned for his sin, and God let him go. God released him of this. And when he's released, she says, you're a bloody husband. <laughs> now, something I had never caught or realized before, we don't see much about Zipporah. She is a Midianitish woman who in the future of the nation of Israel, that's going to be a big problem. 
that's going to be the result of 24,000 Israelites losing their lives because of sin with Midianitish women. So we don't know that her heart was really toward God. We don't see her mentioned much or, or his boys, really. It's his grandsons that really step on to the scene later on in the book of Exodus. And so there's a lot to work out there and a lot of crazy information going on. But what it's designed to show us is this. God told the Israelite men to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. Moses, for whatever reason, did not do that and was living in defiance against God. And his family was out of order before God. And God was angry. God's judgment fell on him because his life was out of order with God. <laughs> See, you, you go to a theme park, you know, and you get a little bit hungry and and you start craving that snicker bar because everything else is way too expensive at those places. And so you're going to go to a vending machine, at least get something relatively cheap. And so you start looking for that vending machine. And I mean, you got this massive dopamine rush in your head and you're so excited. You can taste that bite of that snicker bar right there. And so you find a vending machine, you walk up there, but you see a little white piece of paper on it with black letters that says out of order. That's disappointing. It means it's, not working. It means it's broken. It means it's not usable. It has no use to you. Understand this. When your life is out of order, when your life is not under God's order, he won't use your life the way that he wants to use your life. And so sometimes God is going to bring his chastening into your life like he does here with Moses. And he's going to bring his judgment upon your life to get your life back in order. And you can either respond to God in obedience or you can respond to God in rebellion. And whichever decision you make is going to determine just how hard God's judgment falls on you. I'm not trying to scare anybody into doing right. But the Bible does say, fear the Lord your God and him only shalt thou serve. There's a reason to fear God. Our lives are in his hands. And what God tells Moses here, what he wants us to get from this is that when your life is out of order, God's judgment can fall on you and, and you can't be used the way God wants you to use. See, Paul told Timothy that if a man cannot rule his own house well, how shall he rule the house of God? How shall he keep charge of the house of God? How can a man pastor if his family's out of control? Rather, God is working to get life's, uh, Moses' family and to get Moses' life under order so that God can use his life. And so Moses is back in order. And when Moses is back in order, when he does what God says, God does what he says. Would you look with me at verse number 27? It says, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. This isn't the message, but let me just say this, that the right response of those who are being redeemed, 
the right response of those who have been visited by God, the right response of those who have been brought out of bondage by God is to worship. It is to worship. And there's a big movement today that wants you to believe that it's not all that important to go to church. You can worship God in your house. You can worship God wherever you go. And the, or that the church needs to cut back on its services. And, and so there are a lot of churches that just have Sunday morning. And if that's what God leads them to do, that's what God leads them to do. But what I'm going to say is what the church is designed to be is a place for people who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and brought out of the bondage of sin and slavery and eternal death and separation from God for them to come together and express their gratitude and their adoration and their worship to the God who redeemed them. That's why it's important to come to church. It's not to check off a box on your list. It's not to make your friends happy or your family happy or your, or your pastor happy. It's to please God and to give him the worship that's due to his name for redeeming your soul. But what I want you to notice here is God has promised that Aaron was going to come and meet Moses in the Mount of God. God had promised that he was going to have these signs and he was going to do them. He promised that Aaron would be his mouthpiece before the people. He promised that when they go before the, the elders of the people and they perform the signs and Aaron tells them that God has come to visit them, that the people are going to believe. And what we just read is this. When Moses finally stopped at the excuses, when Moses finally got his life in order and Moses finally did what God said to do, God did what he said he would do. Everything God said came to pass thus far, and it'll continue to come to pass. Moses' greatest fears were never realized, but God's word was proven true. How was God's word proven true in Moses' life? God's word was proven true when Moses did what God said to do. Tonight, God's talking to you. I'm convinced. And if he's not talking to you, there might be a problem. But I'm convinced that God is talking to you and he's telling you to do something. And it could be that God's working on your life about being more faithful and about being more committed in your church attendance to say, I'm going to be there every Sunday morning. I'm going to be there every Sunday night. And I'm going to be there every Thursday night. I want to commit my life to the place of worship where I can express my thanks to God for all that he's done for me. And it might be that God's working that in your life to get to the point where church is not optional anymore, where church is a necessity in your life, where you wake up on Sunday morning, you don't say, how am I feeling today? But you say, I'm going. Or on a Thursday night, you don't say, how hard was the week this week? How, how much turmoil is in my life this week? But you just say, I'm going. Why? Because God's worthy of my worship. I believe that God may be talking to some of you about that. It may be that he's talking to you about tithing and about starting to commit to give to the Lord the way that the word of God describes. Or it might be about giving to missions as we are gonna have missionaries in here this fall and we're gonna renew our faith promise commitment that God might speak to you about that. It might be that God's working on your heart about serving in a specific type of, of ministry or getting more involved in church. Or it might be that God's working on your heart about a call to full-time ministry uh, in, in the gospel work. It may be that he's working on you about some addiction or some vice that has a hold of your life. 
Or it might be that he's working on you about the purity of a relationship that you have, that maybe your thoughts have wandered, your mind has wandered, or maybe you've become too involved physically, or maybe there's something going on in that relationship that you know just isn't right, and God is speaking to you about that, and you know that it's wrong. It may be that God's talking to you about getting married. It's time to get married. God's speaking to you. Maybe he's talking to you about the way that you talk to your husband about the way that you talk or treat your wife, or maybe he's talking to parents about the way that they treat their kids or kids about how they talk to their parents and treat their parents, whether we're talking about little kids or if we're talking about adults, the way that you treat your parents is in the Bible. God's speaking to your heart about that. Or maybe he's been working on your heart about being more of a witness, about taking the gospel to people in our city, to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, or your neighbors, that I'm convinced that if you're a child of God, there are times you're going to come through his word, and he's going to speak to you about some certain things, and he's going to tell you to do something, and what he tells you to do might be a giant leap of faith, and it might be that in that time when he's speaking to your heart, that you're allowing your doubt, and you're allowing your fears and your insecurities to creep into your life, and it's keeping you from doing what God wants you to do, and you're thinking, well, I'd like to, and I know God wants me to be at church more often, but it means I'm going to have to give up some things uh, that I like, and I may not, I may not want to live without those. I don't know how I could live without my weekends on the lake or my weekends in the mountains. It might be that God's speaking to you about, about giving more, and you're just saying, I just don't know how it's going to fit the budget. I don't know where that money is going to come from, or God's talking to you about going into ministry and getting involved, and you just say, I don't have those abilities I can't speak well. I can't stand in front of people. I can't, I could sing in the shower, but I can't sing in front of church. <laughs> there are just certain things that I can't seem to do. As I mentioned earlier, it might be that there's that addiction in your life that's had a hold of you and you're concerned that if you just jump off cold turkey, that your body's not going to be able to handle it and you're going to go through struggles. And hey, I understand that some people go through that, but the reality is you serve a God who can break those chains and free you just like that. And he's done it in many people's lives before. And I know he's done that in people's lives right here in this church over the last year. He does that. It might be that you're thinking, I know I need to purify my relationship. I know things haven't been in the right place, but I'm concerned that if I bring it up, that they're going to break up with me. Well, hey, listen, if they're going to break up with you, just go ahead and break off that relationship because it means it wasn't about love. It was about lust in the first place. If they're willing to let you go over that, just go ahead and let them go. It might be that, you know, if I talk to them about getting married, it's just going to lead to another fight again. You might say, if we get married... Who knows how long we're going to stay together? You know, those doubts. You might say, I know I need to share the gospel. I know that's a responsibility as a Christian, but I'm worried about saying something wrong. Hey, anybody been there before? What if, what if I teach them some kind of Calvinistic theology about salvation? What if I tell them, well, if you're part of the elect, then you'll get saved. And, you know, what if I just say something wrong and it throws off the gospel? I don't want to be guilty of doing that. And you're dealing with that doubt and you're dealing with that fear. And the reality is that you may come to a place in your life where you want to have the proof before you'll obey the truth. You say, I want a sign from heaven like Moses got. 
I want God to speak to me as clearly in a burning bush as he did with Moses. And if, if God gives me the proof, or I want to know that my growth is going to be able to handle this, or I want to know that that person's going to respond the right way, or I want to know that this situation is going to be laid out in front of me, I want to see the proof and then I'll obey the truth. But the reality is God doesn't work that way. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him. See, here's how God works. He steps into your life and he says, I want you to do something. And if you'll do something, I'll work everything out. <laughs> and you say, but where's the proof? He says, you don't need proof. Just follow me. Just obey me. Just do what I'm telling you to do. And when you get to the end, there will be your sign. It'll have happened. Don't you remember how this all started with Moses? He said, I'm going to give you a sign. When you deliver them out, you're going to serve me on this mountain. <laughs> he said, here's your sign. You trust me, you do what I, what I say, and I'll do what I say. <laughs> See, sometimes we want the proof before we obey the truth, but God wants you to obey the truth before he gives you the proof. But here's what you'll find out. That God's word is proven true when you do what God says to do. I want to tell you this tonight. You can go ahead and take the leap. You can go ahead and do what God tells you to do, or you can spend the rest of your life wondering what may have been. You can go ahead and start being at church every time the doors are open, or you can look down your life about 10, 15 years later when you're sitting at home not going to church anymore and wondering what it would have been like if you would have listened to God and done what he said to do. You can go ahead and start tithing. You can go ahead and commit that amount to missions this fall, even though it seems like it's out of your budget, even though it seems like what God's talking about is more than what you can handle. You can go ahead and do it and see how God provides, or you can spend the rest of your life wondering how God would have provided. You can apply biblical principles to your marriage and your marriage will improve drastically and God can work in that and God can even save a marriage that's on the ropes or you can grow through your divorced life wondering what it would have been if you just did what God said. You can go ahead and fulfill the ministry that God's called you to and see him use your life in spectacular ways or you can spend the rest of your life wondering how he would have used you. You can go ahead and start sharing the gospel with people, even though you have a limited knowledge. I just want to know this. If you, if you are saved and you know why you're saved, you can tell somebody else why you're saved. Even if it's as simple as, I'm not a perfect person. I know it's not in me, but I know Jesus died for my sin. And the Bible says, if I call on him to be my savior, that he'll save me right here, right now. I know he'll do the same in your life. You can go ahead and start sharing the gospel and you can see how God works in remarkable ways to use you to bring people to faith in Christ. Or you can spend the rest of your life wondering how God could have used you to bring people to faith in Christ. But the reality is this. When you do what God says to do, God does what he said he would do. That's the truth. If you're here, if you're tuning in tonight and you're not saved, 
God is calling you to be saved. The word goes from the Bible, obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. What does that mean? Does that mean that it's a work? No, it simply means this. Believe that Jesus died to pay the price for your sin and that he rose again and call upon him to be your savior. Those are the two commands. Believe and call and thou shalt be saved. And some would say, once I have the proof, then I'll believe the truth. Well, you can wait around for the proof. You can go ahead and trust Christ. You can go ahead and believe the gospel. You can go ahead and do what the Bible says is required to be saved. Or you can spend all of eternity wishing you would have. Just go ahead and do what God says to do. Believers tonight, church, I believe God wants to do some remarkable things with some remarkable people in this church. And I believe that God wants to use each and every one of your lives to do things that are far beyond your imagination in this city for Christ's glory. But a lot of times the difference between whether or not God uses your life is whether or not your life is in order. And when there are things in your life that are out of order, when you spend your weekends getting drunk or getting high, when, when you don't go to church, when you don't obey God in tithe, when, you, when you're looking at porn, when you're involved in an immoral relationship, uh, when you are not living life under God's order, God can't use your life the way that he wants to. But if you'll just do what God says to do, I believe that when you do what God says to do, God does what he says he'll do. And he'll use your life to do things as great as he used a man like Moses to do. See, a lot of times, and rightfully so, we hold Moses up on a high pedestal. Even the secular world calls him one of the greatest leaders to have ever lived. He's still very highly regarded in the nation of Israel, but I love looking back at these early days, and I love looking at his life because in his life I see me. There are times when my life's out of order. There are times when I'm doubting, times when I'm insecure, times when I'm struggling, times when I don't think God could use me in certain ways. And what God does is when he uses a, a man like Moses, it reminds me God doesn't use perfect people. God uses submissive people. And when you just say, all right, Lord, instead of like Moses was, here I am, send somebody else. You say like Isaiah, here am I, send me. God can do great things with your life. if You just do what he says. So go ahead and take the leap. Trusting God to prove his word to be true. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a good God to us. I'm thankful that you've given us a savior in Jesus Christ who can redeem all of our sins, who can forgive us, who can mold us, shape us, and fashion us into people who can be used for your glory. And for that, Lord, we ought to just bow our heads and worship. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for paying our price.
And thank you for the deliverance we have received through Jesus. I pray that you would help each of us to bring our lives under your order, to follow your word, to take the leaps of faith that you call us to take so that we can see you do what you've promised to do. So would you please bless in our time of response here. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.